Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Mark Rossano, founder and CEO of C6 Capital Holdings. C6 Capital Holdings is an investment group out of New York that examines the market to find non-traditional investment opportunities, one of which that was recently announced was three electric power plants. Right now, my geologist interpretation of investing is that green is good for business. So I'm curious to hear what a real investment expert has to say. Mark, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to C6 Capital Holdings. Well, Joe, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to talk about you know, what we're doing, what are some of the solutions that we're trying to invest in and find. So right now, we, uh, we started the company with the idea that we were going to uh, find these opportunities that are a bit non-conventional and along the energy infrastructure space because we saw a lot of opportunity, a lot of uh, uh, the ability to go out there and actually make a difference, but at the same time, make money. And, and sometimes when you hear ESG or you hear these, these views, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, what is the government going to do? What does the government mean for everything? It, you know, can these make money without government intervention? And the answer is yes. And it takes time. It, it takes, you know, to go through and actually find these opportunities. And, you know, your typical uh, language of, you know, this is not investment advice. You know, this is something where we're just going to talk about the opportunities we see in the market and and some of those non-traditional ones that, that goes into, you know, some fertilizers of the energy used to create and ways to make some of this capacity out there in terms of what's happening in the agricultural world. But at the same time, what is happening in uh, in the electricity space? Because we know based on what's happening in Europe, you know, what is going to happen as demand for electricity continues to rise, what's going to happen with the supply of electricity. You know, we're taking coal offline, we're taking, we're trying to limit the amount of new natural gas. So what does that leave us with? And how do we actually answer the call and find the opportunity to increase supply while also trying to, uh, to reduce the carbon footprint? That is, it's really fascinating to think about and to hear that explanation, especially the the idea that you can you can make and find investments that are both green, renewable, good for the environment. You can do those while making money. And one thing that is that definitely piqued my ears was the fact that you don't necessarily need subsidies for that. Those are all things I think we. I, I want to touch on each of those points. I also want to point out that you are the first 
institutional investor type that I've had on the show. And as I said, my understanding of investments is is very, very low. So I was hoping that you could explain a little bit more about the landscape of investing. What is private equity versus what you do versus what a bank does when you go for a loan? So one of the things that we're looking to do is we're trying to take money from uh, institutional investors, family offices, you know, high net worth individuals, and create a, a return. So what is the hurdle rate that we're looking for? Because you know, one of the things that you bring up, which is a great point, is what about banking? Like where where are banks and all of this? And and they've been um, they've been given the directive to invest in uh, green bonds, you know, social loans and trying to create a portfolio that has this exposure and they're giving introductory rates, which just means that they're giving these, these bonds or these loans and writing them at a low uh, interest rate, which then can help the hurdle rate or the weighted average cost of capital. So how much is it gonna cost me to build this facility? And so let's just, uh, for this example, let's just use hydro. So right now, a lot of these hydro plants that we're looking at are already built. So there, there's, there are things that are there that have been in the, in the water since the late 1800s, early 1900s, depending on where they are. Some of them as, as early, or I should say as late as the 1970s, but they're pre-existing structures. So there's, because what was the U.S. founded on, but it was water power when you look at uh, paper mills, when you look at uh, textiles, especially in the Northeast. So you have these assets that have been upgraded, they've been maintained to a certain point, and now there's an opportunity to come in and purchase them at a, a, a fairly strong valuation. But that is the, the key piece is what is the valuation? You know, what are we looking to buy this all at? And what is going to be the return going forward? Because you know, if you're investing in, in private equity and I'm taking your money and I'm not giving you any type of return for the first five years, I have to make sure that this is going to make this is going to be worth your while because there's an opportunity cost with you locking up your money with me for an extended period of time. So this is something that we're looking at and we're taking these assets and we have a partner who has who has a proven track record of increasing the electricity output by 10 to 20%. And you might say, well, how do you do that? Well, a lot of these, um, these assets are, have been upgraded it's in the 70s and 80s, and then they really haven't had much done to them. And what have we done over the, over the time? Like you talk about you know, the, the show sponsored by AWS. You know, AWS has sensors that you can purchase. You literally put the sensors on the machine. You then, uh, you then put the IP into the cloud. And it just looks at vibration and it's just measuring vibration and calculating it. And now you can have your engineer go in and say, okay, if the, if the vibration falls out of this, this wheelhouse of, you know, this is the allotted limit. If it falls outside of that, alert me. And then each, each sensor is going to alert something differently. They're not going to all go off, but one specific one. So then you can identify what the problem is. This can help with maintenance because over time you're going to collect a lot of data and you can streamline your maintenance schedule. There's also the ability to have automated gates because what does a, a, a hydro plant need but the gate which keeps the water from coming in or uh, coming into the turbine. 
So as the water levels rise, you want to lift the gate. And if the water levels fall, you want to drop it down. Now, in the past, there was a, literally a guy that would go out, kind of eyeball where the water level, uh, level was, and then move the gate. So at 2 a.m. when a rainstorm comes, uh, rainstorm comes through, it's highly unlikely that guy's going to wake up, go outside, and try to adjust things. So that, that means you have a sensor. You have an automated motor. And these are these little pieces that you can increase the throughput. Now, we have the working capital to do that, where when you look at the banking sector at this point, you've had a lot of, um, you've had a lot of regional banks get consolidated and bought up by bigger regional banks. So their, their risk profile has changed and they really don't want to be the front facing side or they don't have the investment arm that they used to. And they want to, uh, to enable someone like us to come in. We would then have the initial equity and then we would create leverage by borrowing from that bank. You know, we would be the operator. We would be the investor, making sure that this is going the way it's supposed to. And they would write. A, uh, a bond or a loan towards us, we would put the asset up as collateral. And that would allow us to, to trade with a little bit more leverage that we could then turn around and buy additional assets with. And the whole idea is trying to get to economies of scale and utilize, you know, dams in the same region, the same type of, uh, you know, create jobs, have those individuals instead of working at one dam, they're now working at four and increase the power availability for that, uh, that underlying region. So one thing that I guess I was, I was hearing everything you were saying, that's very fascinating stuff. And it, it really sounds like this is an opportunity. That's a technology investment. It's not necessarily, it's a technology investment that is being overlaid on top of electricity. Is that Absolutely. a fair fair thing to say? Absolutely. We're taking assets that are there that are have been functioning, they've been they've been throwing off electricity and we're finding ways to increase the electricity output and find ways to create that by using some low-hanging fruit that are technologically based that are in the cloud and ways to increase that that underlying um, you know electricity output. Yeah, that's Frankly, that's just cool. Thinking about taking this technology to increase the electricity and energy efficiency. And I think it, to me, that it's it's clear how and why there would be that, that desire for investment, whether it's a bank or a family office or, or even private equity. When it, I guess the what you were saying with with having to leverage the funding to me is is more of a risk profile idea and you mentioned risk profile why is is something like this not fundable directly from a bank so a bank is is not is going to have a very specific um risk parameters so they you know think about your the mortgage right so that ha- that that bank is going to write a mortgage on that specific house. So that they're going to look at one asset, you know, one mortgage, one house. They're then going to sell that to someone else who's going to create the mortgage backed security and they're going to bundle them together and then they're going to sell them off into tranches. And we all know what happened with MBSs 
back in 07, uh, 08. So they learned from that. They've looked at that and they've said, okay, well, I don't want to go out and, and, and buy up all of these dams. I don't want to go out and do this because I have to, I have to baby it. I have to make sure I have the operator. I have to create the holding company. I have to worry about the taxes, the, the legality. I have to ring fence one asset from another. Oh, and by the way, you also have to deal with FERC. So there's a lot of different moving pieces where they want to just come in. They want to trust a entity that's going to do it, which uh, you know, 65% of the U.S.'s uh, ref, um, uh, hydro dams are owned by mom and pops or small companies. So they would rather deal with the mom and pop who could then say, you know, they would borrow against it or they would they would have a fund come in such as ourselves or a, a C Corp or, you know, a corporate entity that would come in and buy it. And then they would use their balance sheet, their lack of leverage to say, okay, I'm comfortable giving you money and my money is going to be tied to that specific asset. So if I have dam A, they're going to have and write that loan against dam A. Now I'm going to look at this and say, well, I want to take the equity that I've raised. So right now, you know, we're looking to raise 30 million. So I'm going to take that 30 million and I'm going to find ways to try to increase the leverage of that money. But I'm going to want, I'm going to want to do it in the most cost effective manner. So I can then go to these banks and say, look, I'm going to do something that's ESG friendly. That's going to, that's going to fit within your profile. I, you know, write the loan against this dam. I'm then going to take the, the equity that I put into it. So if I, if I bought it for 100% equity, I'm going to take some of that equity out. I'm going to have the loan against it. And I'm going to take that money that I was able to pull back out and go buy additional dams. So where in the, if, you know, let's just say every dam cost a million dollars, instead of uh, buying 30, I can now go buy 60 because I'm going to use that leverage capacity to go in and increase my footprint, which is then going to increase the return for my investors. Now, what do we know about leverage? You have to be very careful with leverage because leverage is great for returns. It can also destroy returns. So that's where the, the investing profile and understanding each specific asset becomes so important because you want to know and, and, and ring fence, what are my risks? So what it, do, do I have a fish ladder? Am I going to have to worry about fish? Am I going to have to worry about eels? Am I going to have to worry about a lot of sediment that is floating in the river that's going to, to shorten the life of my turbine? Am I, so there is all of these different pieces. And let's be fair, a bank just wants to write a loan against an asset that's generating cash. Where I want to get in there with our partner and say, let's let's get nerdy about this. Let's really look at the engineering. Let's figure out the way that we, you know this asset, you know, it's far enough upriver, so I don't have to worry about fish. I don't have to worry about you know trout, salmon, all of these different pieces. I can buy this up here and not have to worry about some of this risk. So there's a lot of ways that we're trying to to evaluate what is the risk profile, what is the cost outlay that may happen. Because there's some dams that we're looking at that we will have to build a fish ladder or a fish elevator. But fish also have to swim upstream. And there's two, um, there's two facilities downstream from us that don't have a fish ladder yet. So I don't have to build one until fish show up. And there's very, very strict protocol 
that we have to follow. And let's, I mean, let's be honest, if you want to, to be successful in this business, you have to be friends and friendly with FERC and the local fish and wildlife. So in order to, so we're, we're going to come out there and we're going to be good citizens and we're going to say, okay, when fish show up at our dam, we will then truck them because there is a, a protocol for trucking them for five years. And then after that fifth year, we will then make sure within that five-year time frame, we've either built a fish ladder or a fish elevator to the specifications of FERC. And those are ways that you create good rapport. You then create a, a, friendly, a friendliness within the community because then if, if the community likes you, there's, you know, again, they're owned by mom and pops. So if you built, if you bought Bobby's dam and you know you do everything right by Bobby, you're doing everything right by the, the community, well, all of a sudden you start getting phone calls that, you know, Dan wants to sell his his dam. Oh, and by the way, you know, Mike wants to sell his dam. And then you can really create a buzz around that. And then if you and if you do things that are right by the bank, they'll be more willing to uh, to work with you. And then that's where you create these relationships, doing things in a very strategic, slower manner, but deploying capital in the most effective way possible to build a book of business that was going to generate electricity for that region and the the local grid. You know, this one that we're that we're working on the most right now is in New England. So when you're talking about you know New England ISO. That's really interesting. And hearing everything that that really I, I really liked the way that you explained all the different parameters. And I'm I'm sure that's just touching the surface on all the different aspects that you really need to look at at when we're talking about hydroelectric power and and making a hydro power plant work both environmentally and and even physically produce the electricity. And I think it as as you were going through that, it it makes complete sense on why a bank would not be interested in dealing with all those different aspects. Why they would rather just have a bond and and loan money to the experts or the owner operator like yourselves who want to get in the weeds and and figure out all of those question marks with the. With your, I guess the 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 thing that really jumped out to me was your was your recent press release about the three hydroelectric power plants that C six Capital Holdings recently acquired. Can we talk a little bit more about that announcement and I guess the the process that you go through when you are evaluating new dams to to purchase and acquire? Sure. So when we look at, you know, we, you always want to do site visits and, and obviously you want to make sure that the dam is there. You know, that's that's first and foremost. But when you're looking at the availability of data, you know, there's nothing more essentially publicly announced than power prices. You know, where is the power originating from? So when we're looking at this, we go into the data room. So the data room is going to have how much power has been is being produced you know, what are the prices that they were being sold at? But at, at the same time, there's also what does FERC know this facility to be? So if this facility is one gigawatt and you're generating 860 uh, kilowatts, well, what is the difference? You know, I'm sorry, uh, megawatts, you know, what is the difference? Like what, 
is there is there a, a functional problem? Is there something where you're just trying to be cautious? Because yeah, that's the boilerplate, but the turbines are a little bit older, so we have to be uh, a little bit gentle, uh, you know, a bit more gentle on the way we use them. You know, is was there a a drought? You know that that brought down the underlying river level because all of the ones that we're looking at are run of river. We're not looking to 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 get into worrying about reservoirs and sediment buildup. We want to look at run of river things that are very simplistic in the way that they're used, and that's that's where we start. So then we'll look at okay, well this dam is is operating very close to specification, and this is this is great. Then when you look at the FERC license, there's going to be an age limit. So you have to get a new FERC license, depending on the location you are, every 25 or 40 years. Now, FERC, that doesn't mean that FERC doesn't show up. You know, they're going to do spot checks. They're going to do surprise checks. They're going to have scheduled um, uh, checks to make sure you're doing everything you're, you said you were going to do. Now, they've also gotten a bit more, uh, uh, they, they've kind of updated their idea of, if this is a small facility, if you're a good citizen, you know what, let's not have this relicensing structure. So now you can get a, a FERC license that is exempt, which just means that you never have to get a new FERC license. It doesn't mean that FERC isn't coming to check. You don't have to provide so, uh, you know uh, sediment samples, water samples. It just means that they're not going to have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to evaluate us again. We're not going to have to spend that. So that's going to, that eases some of the pressure. So you want to look at, can, is this FERC license about to expire? And if it is, can I get an exemption? So those are some pieces because, well, again, some of these mom and pops, they don't know what a FERC license is because they inherited this dam and they don't really understand how to operate with FERC. I've been doing LNG, uh, hydroelectric, essentially anything you can think of. I have dealt with FERC since my career began in the industry. So we we understand the the process and the nuances that go in it. So that uh, adds some uh, some capacity. Then we look at is there room for upgrade? You know, can we put on some automation? Can we put on some some you know AWS capacity? You know, can we do something along those lines? Then we look at what are they selling their electricity at? You know, is it is it sold with a purchase plan ac- agreement or a PPA to a local entity? that is within my fence line? Uh, is there netting, which just means that I've gone back to the utility company and I'm getting the best price possible? And I'll look at that. Is there a way to kind of step up where, you know what, they're only making nine cents a kilowatt hour. I think I can make 11 because they haven't gone back to the utility company and, and pushed for X, Y, Z. Then I'll look at what are the RECs, and which are renewable energy credits. And those are uh, RECs that are being generated that can then be sold back into the market to reduce the carbon footprint because I'm generating electricity on a clean level. You know, these are, these are pre-existing assets, so they fall within the parameters. So I can then turn around and sell that REC into the market. Well, are the RECs being sold the right way? Are they being sold independently or are they being sold through a broker? Is there a way I can increase that price? So those are the, the high level views that we look at. And then when we do our site visit, you know, it has their, you know, we'll get the maintenance schedule. You know, does it look, does it look okay? Are there, are there cracks in the um, dam? Is there 
you know, uh, water trying to seep around the, the, the facility. All of these different pieces then come into an understanding, well, you know, are the bearings starting to get worn? You know, can you show me your heat map when you, when you test the heat of the bearings? Are they going up or down? You know, what is the different levels? And then that's when you start getting more nuance in the engineering. And that's when you're getting towards the end. And then that you're, there's always price, you know, then now, you know, you're, you're the guy sitting there who wants to buy it. So you're going to point out all of the little things that you don't like, and they're going to point out all the great things. And you're going to try to settle on a price based on, you know, we try to push at where electricity prices were because electricity, electricity prices were lower. Obviously right now they're, they're higher and we think they're going to continue to rise. So you're trying to kind of walk that line so you can get the best price and then maximize the return for your investors. Yeah, thank you for walking us through that. I think that's, there are a lot of different moving parts. And I, I think that that layout, very similar to what we do in geothermal exploration, we go high level, looking at the at the big picture and slowly getting more and more into the nuance to ultimately figure out what the what the value is of that resource. I wanted to just quickly touch on two things. First, can you define FERC for us? Sure. It's the, uh, it, I mean, it's the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission. Okay. It's just in case anybody doesn't know, yeah. FERC is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And then when you say mom and pop size, what what size are we actually looking at here? You know, there's there are things as small as a hundred kilowatt hours up to you know one point two gigawatt or so. You know, it depends on what was the facility that was being supported. You know, what was the use of it? And it back in the '60s and '70s, um, there was a huge incentive where they would um, the the local power plants were, I should say, utility companies were incentivizing and guaranteeing a floor of about 14 cents a kilowatt hour. So some people built some very small, you know, if there was a stream in their backyard or a a fairly, you know, steady stream or a fairly robust, you know, small river, they would try to put some of this, these, these smaller entities. So that, that's where the mom and pop, you know, quote unquote thing comes through because, you might have a family that came, that came here from from England, came here from uh, from another European country. They settled the area. They then, you know, uh, bought land. They turned. They they had this this great forest behind them, and they created a paper mill. And they they ha- they needed a lot of power for that paper mill. And then, as you know, they got bigger and stronger. They add instead of having one turbine, they added a second turbine. You know, maybe they added a third. And now, because of uh, because of you know exporting uh, the supply chain, because of exporting you know industrial capacity, because maybe this was no longer the most efficient way to do it, that facility closed. But the family that initially owned it still owns it to that to this day, and those are the people that are maybe looking to retire, looking to capitalize on us coming through, and people actually wanting these assets. Or they're coming up to for relicensing, and they've got a lot. They've gotten a lot of money from it over the years, and they don't want the headache. And they're willing to to sell it at either a discount or a fairly reasonable price because we're going to take a headache away from them 
and we're going to go and uh, and work with the the community and the government to bring this um, you know increase the throughput for this uh, asset. And so when you say, when you mentioned the FERC relicensing and the FERC exemption licensing category, that could really cover anything from that 100 kilowatt scale all the way up to one gigawatt? Yes. Yeah, because everything that is in a structure that you will, in order to sell power, you have to have that FERC license. So you not only have to have your FERC license, but you also have to work with local game and wildlife. And sometimes the two entities don't agree. And that's when things get really fun and interesting when you're trying to deal with two regulatory agencies that don't like each other or don't agree on how to do things. And then you're almost like a mediator trying to make everybody happy. And those are the pieces, but uh, you know, game and wildlife uh, essentially is, is part of the relicensing process because when you're going through getting that FERC license, you also have to get local sign off. And, and like when you, if you look at natural gas pipelines within, uh, within New York, you know, even though FERC was okay with it, you, ne- you, they, you know, they essentially never got the approval of New York state and the local entities. So it, it, it is a huge component and it, it can stop you dead in your tracks. So you want to make sure that fish and wildlife and the local government is also signing off on it because it also streamlines the process when you're trying to get that FERC license. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because one of the things that I've always noticed with hydroelectric power specifically is that it can be divisive. And as you point out, even in New York City or New York State, with the natural gas pipelines that were going in, that was that was something that ultimately didn't occur because of this divisive nature of natural gas. Mm-hmm. And and you point out the same potential issue with hydroelectric power. Do you have any any examples or a way that you think about how you can make this a potential win-win scenario? Because as we all know, green power is is good and especially baseload green power, such as hydroelectric, but you are creating at some level some type of alteration to the natural world, the game and fish and wildlife organizations and agencies could see a problem with that. So how do you how do you get to that point of of I guess making it a win-win where everybody is happy with the end result? Sure. And and it's a great question and it's a great point when it's something that we're very sensitive to when we're looking at um, how to how to make everybody happy. And so because these are older assets, there's been a sediment buildup to some degree behind them. And because of the way we did business and industrial uh, industrialization throughout the last 150 some odd years, we weren't very good stewards of the environment. And so things ended up in the rivers, in the streams. But over time, they, as we cleaned up our practices, they have gotten buried beneath the sediment. And then better sediment has built over it. And then ecosystems have built on top of that. 
So when you when you come in and you maintain this dam and you maintain the integrity of it, well, some of that sediment that has now built up is so far beneath the surface, it's no longer impacting the local environment. But if you were to have a terminal failure, if you were to go in and just blindly start uh, start dredging and, and without without any kind of recourse of what would this do, what would this stir up? Well, then you're gonna you're gonna create way more damage than you're really stopping at this point. So we're 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 looking at structures that are currently in place, have been grandfathered in because of some of these what they're holding back really. And, and let's be fair, what the cost it would be to remove them. Because not only are you removing the dam, but you also have to remove all of the sediment and go through the process of cleaning it to essentially bring this back to the standard it needs to be in. Now, in the meantime, we're also going to look to generate electricity that is going to be consumed by the local populace. And then that doesn't require an additional natural gas facility or an additional facility that may not be baseload or may need battery uh, backup. And then we can go through, well, is it better to, to use an asset that's already there that is, is clean from this point, or do we build a battery and then we can go through cradle to grave on what that battery took on the carbon backdrop and the mining side versus then when we have to go and recycle that battery. So there's give and takes on both. So we're looking to use this th these assets and be that steward, but we also have learned more and more about wildlife. So when you look at, say, let's just use trout for an example. So trout like cold, dark water. So what, what can we do? Well, this, this dam is also creating some backlog behind it. So we can then say, look, we're going to put this flashing, and flashing is just a uh, uh, essentially flaps that that stand up on the on the top of the dam and they have special um, psi graded uh, failure and the psi graded failure is to avoid any type of flooding behind it so an example is if you have a massive rainstorm and all of a sudden the water's rising the water's rising well there is a P psi level where the pressure against this piece of metal increases to a point that it instantly fails and it alleviates this, this water behind it. Now, why is that a positive? Well, one, we can increase the, the electricity throughput because we're going to increase some of the depth behind us. But you have to be very careful when you do that because are we going to starve too much water downstream and are we, and are we going to create a backlog upstream? But if you do it right, which is doing consistent testing on water levels, bacteria levels, making sure that there's a natural flow of water and, and essentially just maintaining the, the fluidity of the ecosystem, you can then behind the stream, increase the water level, which has been proven to actually increase trout population, to increase the ecosystem that has traditionally, tr traditionally liked a darker, colder river stream that then propagates more upstream and not just downstream. But you have to do it within reason. And that's when that's why you work closely with, with both FERC, who's going to look at the whole piece, and the fish and wildlife, who's going to say, look, you know, if we increase this depth, we would be happy to maintain and, and track, you know, a fish population. 
and we could build, you know, a little beach or a little picnic area over here because the water would be a little bit deeper. It could be an, a nice spot for the community. And those are different types of negotiations that you have that make that tries to make everybody happy while at the same time also increasing our electricity throughput. Yeah, that's really makes total sense. And I I like the way that that you put it in and think about it, walking through, really looking on looking at how everybody can win in that situation, making making more of a community atmosphere, somewhere where people can go and enjoy nature, also making a better environment than the current state of the of the dam location. And I think it something that I I didn't realize is and didn't think through is that sediment buildup and how you really have potentially pollution from the Industrial Revolution or from the the building of the United States at the base of these dams, since some of them have been around since the early industrialization of the U.S. and and now removing that would be would be for lack of a better term a very large headache right and it would be a, a large headache a costly headache and then you're also removing power generation so then the mm-hmm. question is how are you going to replace that additional power you're taking off and is there a win win there where i can still generate power while still being kind to the environment and helpful on that front yep yep so just out of curiosity, as you are looking through these projects, it sounds like you're primarily looking to be and be an owner-operator of these dams. Is there ever a situation where you would be interested in just being more of an investor in, in one of these projects? Uh, so the short answer is yes, but the long answer is uh, we would always want to be the operator. So we 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 would co-invest with individuals, especially as the assets get bigger. But it, we also want to know that things are being done the right way, and and things are being done in a way that you know uh, avoids any kind of legal issue, any type of uh, friction, if you will. And you can only really do that if you're the operator. And so we have the partnerships in place. We have the, the, um, the people there that would give us that comfort that we would be able to maintain the, the integrity of the operation and really become the most efficient uh, capacity out there. And that's, that's, just, that's just some proof. I mean, we may come across people that are very similar and like-minded and we, and, and in that case, we may be a bit more willing to give up some of that control, but we are always looking to co-invest as well. You know, some of these assets are, are massive and we're, our fund is small. You know, hopefully we, we, we impress people enough that fund two is a little bit bigger and then we can uh, deploy more capital. But right now we're, you know, crawl before you can walk, walk before you can run. So we're really trying to play this in a in a uh, smaller scale, but at the same time, we're buying an asset that the moment we sign on the dotted line, we have cash flow, and that is something that's very uh, intriguing. And, and I think it's a great way when you start looking at where is inflation right now in the market. 
know, how am I going to deploy capital in a market where so many valuations are frothy? You know, inflation is a real fear, but then so is, you know, now you're starting to see stagflation and deflation. And so we're looking at something that is a hard asset. There's a real estate behind it. Oh, and by the way, you're creating electricity that is a rate base that is 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 increasing in demand. That is, you're seeing a decline in supply in that region, and you're generating wrecks. So we, but we look at things because when you start looking at some of these different pieces, what happens if that wreck goes away? And I'm not saying it will, but what happens if you have a president come in and a Congress that comes in and says, "No more, we're getting rid of these." Well, how many people invested because there was some sort of subsidy? You know, we stress this to if that wreck goes away, am I going to make money? Is the or the investors going to make money? And if the answer is yes, we will go ahead with it because we that wreck is just now an added bonus or a sweetener to an already solid base that we think is going to to uh, to survive through and what we like to call the recession test. If we have a recession, what is this asset worth? You know, because obviously a recession, you're going to have you know, uh, you'll you'll have demand come off because industrial use will 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 get a little bit lower. You'll start to see some of those pressures. You know, so again, we always want to look at what is that going to be? What is it recession proof? Is there a recession slowdown? And what about drought? You know, what happens with a drought? What happens with heavy rainfall? You know, because you'll have your up and down years. Because I, I think we when we were when we were looking at it, on average, every fourth or fifth year is a drought that will reduce the amount of money that it's going to throw off. So again, those are some of those benefits as well, because again, that data, there's very few things where the moment you sign on that dotted line, you're getting paid. Yeah, that is too true. (laughs) That it sounds like that is, is a unique situation in terms of the idea of refurbishing or buying existing assets compared to building new. Right. And, and there's, and and there's, there's, you know, as we get this, this base and we get some of this cash flow, that's going to allow us to expand out into some other things that we're looking at that are going to be a little bit longer in timeframe. But this is something that is, we can then take this cash flow. We can then leverage some of these assets. The bank is comfortable because it's throwing off cash. So I don't have to worry about, are you going to pay my interest and principal? Because I know this is throwing off money. So there's a certain amount of comfort that the bank gets when we're looking to leverage. But at the same time, there's also the ability to go out and use this cash to then go and make a little bit of a riskier um, uh, investment, something that has a different profile that isn't going to generate cash upfront, but it's something that's going to generate, you know, more substantial or something a little bit bigger because you're always trying to work you're working the 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 fund and one of the things that I, i've always stressed and it was beaten into me as as a as a young in coming into wall street was you're not managing cash you're managing risk so make sure you manage risk and the cash will come and so we take that to heart and we look at things you know we will never have an asset that's over 10 percent of of the um, of the fund in case something happens, you know, we're going to have this risk spread out. You know, these are things that we look at as kind of our cash cows, where then we can take a little bit of a riskier profile for the next thing within reason. And then once we get some of this comfort from investors and ourselves, 
and we've had some of this cushion, some of these successes that kind of just, again, continues to build on itself, but you don't get cavalier. And that's where a lot of people fail. You know, you don't get cavalier with, with leverage and taking this risk because, oh, well, I made all this money. So I'm so good at what I do. Uh, you know, everything I touch turns to gold. So I'm going to go do this project. Well, no, you know, nobody's untouchable. You know, if there's anything that this market can teach you is always be humble, because if you're not, it'll make you humble. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that is a great way to put it, especially because it's it's almost a it's industry agnostic advice and it is green energy fossil fuels really just really agnostic advice managing the risk not the cash flow and i think that that is a really really good point and definitely needs to be heard i think the one thing that i've i've wondered about as we've been talking is as you talk about renewable energy credits and and somehow monetizing the the carbon savings or the greenhouse gas emission savings is there a way that when you talk about these these hydroelectric dams and really the refurbishing of them and increasing the output how are you quantifying and what is the quantification of how much co2 you're pulling you're you're reducing by by this process so they recognize it by kilowatt hour so for every one kilowatt hour we're generating using this facility it, it, it generates one uh one wreck because they're they're showing that you're doing this in a green way you're doing this in a way that is reducing carbon because without you it would be generated by you know let's just say natural gas so off of that, you generate one wreck. Now there is there. It's very clear in terms of what the structure is. Like you know, if we were to build a brand new dam, you would have to meet very specific protocols to generate that wreck. So that's some things that you're always looking at as well. What are, what is the specification? How do we get approval from the state and the government and, and the federal government that we're going to generate this in a clean manner? And then it's tied specifically to your meter. So those are things that allow us to be a bit more um, advent. It creates an advantage, especially if we're looking to increase throughput, because by increasing throughput, by not you know, introducing carbon into the mix, you're going to naturally increase your, uh, your, um, your rec, uh, recs as well. Now, some of the hindrances, which is something that is constantly being addressed, is where can they be sold? So as you brought up the three dams that we just purchased, you know, there's reciprocity between Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. So that just provides opportunity because they're going to share and we're going we're gonna to try to find the highest bidder. But at the same time, it increases the pool that somebody in Massachusetts can, can get from or, you know, for a biopharmaceutical company that's operating there or in Rhode Island, where some other areas still have it within their state borders. So one of the things that we, we do think is going to happen over time is that you're going to get a much bigger and bigger pool of assets because they're going to want states to open up and they're going to want to create a bit more opportunity, but they'll have to be, you know, because is New Hampshire going to require as many as Massachusetts? Well, no, but if New Hampshire keeps it locked within their state, 
that'll keep the price low for their industrial capacity versus what is happening in Massachusetts. So there's going to be some, some, you know, stealth negotiations, if you will, or, or, or some backroom deals to say, well, if you, if you allow my state, AKA Massachusetts to uh, tap into your recs, we will then uh, have, you know, more trade or something else that will be an incentivizer into New Hampshire. So those are little things that are happening now to try to increase the carbon trade, you know, the carbon pool to uh, to reduce the the uh, the footprint and to try to leverage some of these assets. So those are some of the little nuances when you're looking at these pieces of well, who can I sell these recs to? You know, Massachusetts, depending on where you are, has a fairly robust um, uh, industrial sector, depending on what part of the state you're in. And there's there's opportunity within that. And those are things that we're looking to to drum up. And we have someone that would be uh, selling them on our behalf versus using a broker because brokers take, you know, 15%. But at the same time, you might have a facility nearby that says, hey, um, I need X amount of recs per year and I'll pay you a little bit of a premium as long as you guarantee me X every year for the next 10 years. And those are things that we would also look to leverage to not only increase our uh, our return, but also get a certain amount of comfort that we don't have to worry about going out and selling this. And then we can, that also makes the bank happy because now you have guaranteed cash flow with a purchase plan agreement that we can then use to leverage. So there's different ways that we're looking at how are these recs generated and then how can we actually sell them into the market to make an impact both regionally but also can we become part of a solution of, well, maybe there should be something national or something a bit broader to increase um, the ability to, to spread out. And, and again, that's a little selfish because we want the highest price, but also there's a certain amount of, well, how can we be good stewards? And I think this is a, a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that and, and kind of bringing that full circle. One one more question that on dams and then we're going to move on right now. It seems that there is a trend of dam removal. A lot of this seems to be taking place in the, in the Northwest, not necessarily. I I haven't seen anything from the new England region, but have seen pretty large articles and large announcements of dams and the removal process starting to be I guess started in the upper upper northwest. And my question behind this is do you think we're going to see any new hydroelectric dams built in the US as part of the green energy push or is it really going to be focused on refurbishing and potentially slowly decommissioning a lot of these large hydroelectric projects? I it's a great question and it's one of the reasons why we're so cautious on what states are we operating in what kind of asset are we getting ourselves involved with so when you take the pacific northwest as as an example you know they they did things uh, wrong and and I, and I say that and uh, this is actually because i was so involved in that i actually didn't like hydropower for a very long time because there were things that were done that didn't really appreciate the the long-term impacts so when you look at salmon 
the the view was that well you know they'll they'll just restructure their their mating habits they don't have to come as far upstream so we don't need fish ladders so then all of a sudden you saw a huge decim like the the salmon population got utterly decimated and then all of a sudden they started in, you know, inputting uh, ladders and that increased the salmon uh, population. So there was kind of the, the wrong way to do things from the outset. Then you have uh, obviously climate shifts, weather shifts, and now you have a bit more of a drought than you've had in previous years. So you then you start looking at, well, what is the, the cost of operating this? Because as water levels get low and you're, you're asking the turbine to turn on less water, you're increasing the strain on the bearings, the, the unit in general, and you're going to take away some of its longevity. Then a lot of them also used a reservoir uh, setup, so storage. So think about energy storage in that regard. Now, the problem is when you have a reservoir, you inherently have sediment buildup. So when you're from years zero to 10, that's fine because sediment is building up below your intake valve. Uh, so now as you get closer to your, to your intake, the sediment's creeping higher and higher. And because a lot of these rivers are coming down from the mountains, they're coming down in ways that increase the sediment that is suspended in it, you've seen a very fast um, accumulation of sediment that is now approaching where your intake valve is or your intake gate is. So you have to go through the process of dredging. But as we've said before, you don't want to just do surface dredging. You want to dig beneath, you know, because you've created an ecosystem and you want to dredge beneath where things were. Well, now I'm, now I'm digging down to start dredging. Well, you know, this dam is how old, you know, what, what, are, what is the, are, are there any pollutants that are there? Are there any issues in there? And did you maintain this asset? You know, if you look at uh, California, there have been assets that have not been maintained and they've had terminal failure. So there's a lot of, you know, best lessons to learn from the Pacific Northwest and in Northern California. Now, when we look at going forward, we are cautious on new dams. Uh, it's, 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 I would say it's, unlikely that we see dams used in a meaningful way. There could be some spots where you can have a small asset that gets put up. Like there's been several dams that have been built in the Northeast. Um, and there's best practices that are now being involved that limit the amount of sediment buildup that are friendly to fish that are being, uh, that are being built in a place that is far enough upstream. I don't have to worry about fish or eels in the same way. So there's a bit more. Uh, uh, there's a bit more of a hesitancy and due diligence done at the outset, but again, those are those are far and few between. So I would say that I don't see a lot of new dams being built. I think what we have right now is actually fairly sufficient. If you were to go to the EIA website and just look at the hydropower that's available, uh, but it, again, it's a matter of optimizing. And, and if you let them go into terminal failure, well, what does that mean? Is there going to be a downstream impact, upstream impact? And then you come into some other issues. So I, I think it's better to find the right partner, high grade the asset, protect the asset and use it and optimize it to generate the electricity that I think the grid 
is is getting starved for more and more over that um you know over the next let's call it two uh, one to two decades yeah I, th- I think that's a really good perspective on it and thank you for that that input because that is it's one of those things that as we really as we talk about full decarbonization and, and getting to net zero hydroelectric power is one of the one of the baseload options geothermal being i would argue the 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 next best option or maybe the better option we can we can talk about that offline but <laughs> always happy to <clears throat> yeah so it it's always a question of as we are going through the process what is that what is that uh, compromise that we go through on on building new versus refurbishing and the environmental impact even of these green green energy technologies that we are implementing what is that environmental impact that that we have so with that i've got a few final questions in the in the wrap up the first one being what's the most important book you've read so the most important now is, is this recently of or of all time recently all time whatever you want whatever you want to recommend sure so i would say of all time and, and I, it's funny because i just had a twitter conversation on on some of the best books that i've ever read and in the top three uh you know a man's search for meaning by victor frankel um is one that i read as a junior in high school and i've probably read it i would say about 10 times since and I think that that puts a huge perspective on life, on, on how to be a good human to other humans. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a great wake up call to understanding where do we go from here and, and how do we kind of fix, let's just say, the issues that we have today of not listening to our fellow man and their views. And let's be honest, feelings and, and ways to, to improve society. So that would be an all-time book. Uh, recently, I just read. Uh, well, I did. It was the Prisoners of Geography, so it's the follow-on book. But Prisoners of Geography is one because I think we have to appreciate um, the tribal nature of of each of of the world, and and how those tribes were formed, and and how geography was a huge uh, foundation behind that. And I think if you appreciate that. You can then understand some of the geopolitical strife that we currently have. And then uh, combining that with Viktor Frankl's uh, views of, of man and, uh, and finding that meaning, I think if you link the two, it becomes very powerful. Thank you for those. They all, they all sound very interesting and very relevant and important for, for us to be reading. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? So I, I think that we have a technological hurdle to overcome. And when I look at uh, technology and I look at what we've accomplished, you know, I think that we are getting close to, to addressing that hurdle. Unfortunately, when you look at cheap money, when you look at, um, you know, instead of inventing, we've just created financial trades of buyback stock, increased debt and really not focusing on R&D, you're going to get a little bit of that slowdown, which is going to be an impact. But I, I would say it's going to carbon neutral will be past 2050. Um, I don't think we'll be able to achieve it uh, with the current technological footprint we have. 
uh, you know, there's a lot of really cool things that we're evaluating as potential investments that are at a uh, not only just a lab scale, but also they, there's been test sites. So I think one of the biggest ones to to look at is food and and the way we grow food, the way we use waste, because we've uh, abused our soil and we have to find ways to rejuvenate it in order to really uh, go through and and uh, and address that. So I would say you know. <laughs> 2075. Uh, well, let's pick a round number. I, I, I unfortunately don't think we're, we're anywhere close by 2050. And then this also gets into how much nu- how much how much are we willing to accept nuclear as our uh, as part of our footprint? Because I think if we can adopt that and get people comfortable with nuke, you could actually see that accelerate. But I just don't know if there's the political uh, or really social wherewithal to do that at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And nuclear is one of those. It is even more divisive than hydropower. So it'll be one that I'm sure will be coming up in the near future and will continue to be part of the conversation. The last question that I have is what one question do you have for me? Now you've you've spoken about geothermal and and I think it's a very interesting uh, backdrop and you know we've I've done geothermal when I was in the Middle East and we saw some some great things we saw some unfortunate things you know what are where do you think geothermal plays into kind of where the future solution looks like in terms of an energy solution and energy storage and and how do you think that plays into kind of where we go from here. Yeah. So geothermal, I think is, and of course this is biased, but I think it is as close to a silver bullet as we can get. Maybe you can call it a, a copper bullet does a a very good job of, of dispatching the, the animal, the target that being climate change and also has, lower environmental impacts. And I say that because it is a traditional geothermal system gives you that that green baseload energy with a very small footprint it, through something like a, gen, a synthetic geothermal reservoir. This is something that, that my company Petrolearn is working on that gives you a seasonal energy storage capacity. And if you couple that with, with something like concentrating solar power or PV or wind or even, even hydroelectric, you can make a green seasonal, seasonal scale storage option. And that is that ends up being something that you can't really get from batteries. It, it's more equivalent to something like pumped hydro. And then the other aspect that I'm sure you're aware of being in the Northeast is ground source heat pumps or geothermal heat pumps, which is a way to decarbonize central heating and cooling. And that is a a significant, some people say 40, some people say 50% of energy use is, is climate control in residential and commercial buildings. So if we were to start thinking about and start switching over to to geothermal heat pumps as opposed to our air-cooled HVAC systems or our natural gas heating, that is 
those are three different ways to tackle the the big question marks of of green energy and of a net zero uh, society hitting baseload green power, seasonal long duration storage, and decarbonizing climate control, heating and cooling. So really, I think geothermal and and those are, to take another step back, those are three different price points, three different utilization schemes and how you implement those. So I think it it really is something that everybody should be looking at, even if it is some some resident who is looking to build a new house because you can't find houses anymore. That they should be considering geothermal heat pumps for their heating and cooling system. And in that way, they get to be part of the net zero future. I think that's fantastic. I mean, how far do you think we, we are away from this being uh, more mainstream? Mm, that is, that's a good question. There are, there are some, some technologies like the geothermal heat pumps that is known technology that is being implemented everywhere. It really is just a, it is, it's something that, just needs to really catch on. I think that could be mainstream within the next five years. Any new construction, any any refurbishing of older houses and renovations, those could all be utilizing geothermal heat pumps. As far as large gigawatt scale geothermal power plants and gigawatt scale synthetic geothermal reservoirs for storage those i think are a longer maybe maybe 10 maybe 15 years down the line but there are active r&d projects active field trials that could advance that to seeing a a commercial plant within the next 5 years or maybe maybe even sooner okay so i think there's a lot of it as you point out there's there is that technology gap and with geothermal that requires field testing and that requires field trials and pilot projects and those are the that's kind of the stage where we're at that needs that funding that very early still fairly high risk to go through that pilot stage to then become something that is that is more mainstream investable okay well th- thank you for that and then uh yeah just to sneak another one in what books do you recommend Ooh, what books do i recommend i have not i have not been as good at reading this past year as i should have been so right now i am i am reading um I don't even remember the the title. But that is the only book that I'm reading right now. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Sure. And while you're looking, what when when do you think we go uh carbon neutral? I think carbon neutral is 
it's going to be in the future. It's going to be, I would guess, 2075 to 2100. Okay. I, I had one answer that I really liked, and this was coming from Bernie Carl. He is a geothermal pioneer up in Alaska, and he put it very clearly. It well, it, it was his answer was that it is going to take two generations of of commitment, and that is commitment to a net zero society, because we can do as much as we can, and we can instill that into our children and the the next generation of workers but it's going to require that generation to then instill it into the next and make it make it a make it commonplace so that it's not a it's not pushing boundaries it is just the way of life to have a net zero society so i think from that perspective we are a minimum 60 years out and that really requires us to to be pushing forward so we could be net zero or close to it have all the technologies as you point ready to go maybe in the next 25 years but actually getting those implemented is going to be the the workers of tomorrow I'm right. I'm right there with you. I, I like that. Yep. So the book that I am actively reading right now is Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail by Theodore Roosevelt. And it is, it's one of those that, that helps me look back on what life used to be like. It also helps me look back and think about somebody like Roosevelt, who is known as this great conservationist. But also as I'm reading this, I am I'm appalled at the way that he looks at his fellow workers and the other people, the indigenous people and the the African Americans that are in in his life and just the frank way that he talks about them, but in a in a very condescending and and maybe borderline racist way, but that's just kind of that's the way life was back then. And it helps me realize that there, it helps me look back with the nostalgia of what it was life, what life was like to live on a ranch, but also appreciation for how far we've come and also a, a impetus to, to continue improving the way, the way I am as a human and and the way we are as a society with diversity, inclusion, and and all really just showing everybody your love. Right. Yeah, not to turn this into a, a you know a book a book <laughs> report, but like I, I grew up in Oyster Bay, five minutes from the summer White House. So I, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was was kind of being ingrained in us. You know, I, I went, you know, the, the Teddy Roosevelt Park was right there. The the town I grew up in was one of the first places to have a phone. And it actually wasn't at the Summer White House, was but was at his office, which was in the which was right on Main Street. So it's very interesting when you look at his converse, his conver, uh, conservation love of animals, 
but then where he was in terms of on the social side and how things have changed or stayed the same, depending on, on which lens you're looking at through and how some mm-hmm. of that has to continue to grow and adjust. Yeah. But it is, it is always fascinating to read through history. Like one of the other books I just finished was the, um, uh, the, the, it was about Churchill. It was the, um, the, the something in the vial. Um, and it was all of uh, the splendid and the vile, and it's all about this, the, the the defiance during the Blitz of the Germans on on Britain. And it's it's always fascinating to look at human life and what we've what we've endured and then accomplished on the back end. And mm-hmm. as you said, always looking to grow and expand, which is why leading that into the carbon neutrality, I think is very interesting because not only do we have to have it there and available, but also you know implemented and have generations behind us because i'm a huge believer in generational cycles and the importance of them and how geopolitics really move on a on a you know that 20 as you said 20 to 40 year cycle 20 to 60 year cycle and how important that is to see that implemented uh change happen over that course of time yep yep yeah it 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 is fascinating to think about and also to look back on history and and really use that to help us look forward and and progress as a society. Well, with that, are there it, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. So thank you for joining me. Is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? No, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for having us, uh, having me, you know, C6 on, uh, you know, I, hopefully we, we can keep the conversations going. And if you'd like to learn more about a potential investment, you know, please reach out to me at mrosano at c6capitalholdings.com. And then you can also find me on Twitter at MarkFNY, where I discuss this, other things, you know, in my geopolitical bent, as well as uh, what's happening in the macro world. Mark, thank you very much for that. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And with the new year, you should try a new office. Those of you in the Houston area can go try the Canning co-working space for free. Just mention OGGN for a free day pass. It is my Houston office when I'm in town, and it's also where we host the monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you want to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.